Thank you for waiting, and thank you for joining us. I'm Arthur Herman, Senior Fellow at the Hudson Institute, and it's my distinct pleasure and honor to welcome you to what I promise you will be a not only fascinating, but I think eye-opening discussion today uh, on what we have called the hidden history of World War II uh, on aspects of the uh, what I'm calling the violent century in Asia, the 20th century, and an understanding in what are, in many cases, little known or little understood aspects of that period of time and of that period of history. Because if, if it's really true that the past is prologue, then what we will be discussing is the prologue, the larger prologue for events and trends that are unfolding now today in Asia, whether we're talking about events in the South China Sea and East China Sea, or if we're talking about uh, events in the Korean Peninsula, uh, events in the Taiwan Straits, uh, the unfolding of, uh, of, the, of conflicts in the Indian uh, as well as Pacific Oceans, all of these, I think, will become clearer in your mind and be better understood as a result of the proceedings today. Now, I have to say also that for me, as someone who has written two books dealing with the history of Asia, uh, my book on uh, Gandhi and Churchill, which uh, I was honored to be one of the three finalists for Pulitzer Prize when that came out in 2008, as well as my most recent book, uh, Douglas MacArthur, American Warrior, which deals with an iconic figure who, after all, spent more than a quarter of his life in Asia and who was a, was a decisive figure in that area, not just in World War II, but in the post-war period and the Korean War as well. And also my new book, if I may say, a little bit of self-advertising here, which touches on uh, World War I's impact on Asia. Uh, it is particularly gratifying for me to have this very distinguished panel, this constellation of learning and knowledge and insight uh, to be able to tap into and to listen to uh, this afternoon. Uh, and here I'm speaking of uh, Dr. Sarah Payne from the U.S. Naval War College, uh, Dr. Shin uh, Kawashima from the University of Tokyo, uh, uh, Mr. Sh uh, Junchiro Shoji, uh, Dr. Michael Chang, Dr. Edward Dre, and Dr. Daiking Yang. These are going to be our panelists. These are going to be the, the people who are going to shed light for us on this very important chapter and very important chapter, not just in the history of Asia, but also, as we'll see, in the relationship between the United States uh, and Asia going forward today. Um, it's important for us, again, to remember to think about this era of, when we think about World War II, Americans in World War II, we think of it as a series of episodes uh, that tie to connection to issues having to do with the U.S. and Japan and the war and campaigns that unfolded in that brutal conflict. But it's important for us to realize today that the U.S.'s involvement in Asia and its involvement in these conflicts and this arc of crisis in the 20th century isn't, didn't start with just a few terrible hours on December 7, 1941. They're tied into a whole panoply of events and trends that were unfolding in that continent uh, through the 20th century and which continue now to be part of, how the, have an impact even today in our relations with countries such as China, such as Japan, uh, such as India, and the, uh, uh, the Korean Peninsula and the whole uh, array of countries uh, scattered across uh, East Asia, Southeast Asia, and South Asia. Um, this is part of what it is to have that larger perspective, is understanding how the American experience in World War II and the conflicts that unfolded there sit within a network of events and trends and of, of dynamics, international geopolitical dynamics, for which World War II is only one but very important part uh, 
uh, and one in which the human costs of World War II and of the U.S.-Japan conflict have to be set in the perspective of the human costs of that century, of that violent century in Asia, when we're talking about how many millions uh, in, the, uh, in the Chinese Civil War, perhaps three million. When we think about the, the, loss, the, the loss of life of China in World War II, of 10 million plus, we think of the loss of life in the Korean War of 2 million plus Koreans and perhaps another million Chinese in that conflict. Of the 2 million who would die in the Bengal famine uh, in British India, as well as the lives lost during the uh, struggle for independence and partition that unfold from all of that. It's, it is in many ways a terrible history, the history of Asia in the 20th century, but it is also at the same time uh, a history that touches us today, that reaches out and has its impact on relations today, and this is why it is important for us to understand and to grasp that. Now what I'd like to do now is to introduce our introducer for our very first speaker, uh, my colleague here at Hudson Institute and also co-director of our program today, uh, and that's uh, Lewis Libby. Thank you, Arthur. Uh, thank all of you for coming. I want to thank our speakers, some of whom traveled quite far. Um, God knows what time of day it is for them. Uh, let me also uh, say that last summer, when Arthur and I were kicking around the ideas for this conference, um, three things came to my mind, and I thought I would mention them here today. Um, the first was a comment by a Foreign Service colleague of mine who used to say that the problem with history in the Soviet Union is that it's very unpredictable. The communists contorted history uh, because it's useful to do so and because they could for a while. And the temptation to shape the future by remodeling the past uh, remains, which leads to the second of these summer reflections. Uh, for the ancient Greeks, the ability to predict the future and to understand the past were literally twinned. Former Secretary of State Kissinger, who has studied some great statesmen in his time and uh, is close to uh, at least one of them, has described the difference between statesmen and ordinary leaders. He writes, the great man focuses on the relationship of events to each other. The ordinary leader sees only a series of seemingly disconnected events. The great man understands the essence of a problem, Kissinger continues. The ordinary leader grasps only the symptoms. One of Kissinger's early protégés, the legendary American strategist Andrew Marshall, was once asked what would-be statesmen should study. Marshall replied, history, history, history. This would be good for your departments, I think. We're here today for that kind of learning and these kinds of insights. Fortunately for us, we have with us our first speaker. Uh, we will introduce each speaker sort of in more detail before they speak. Our first speaker, Dr. Sally Payne. Dr. Payne is the William S. Sims Professor of History and Grand Strategy at the U.S. Naval War College. She holds degrees from Harvard, Middlebury, and a PhD from Columbia. Dr. Payne spent nine years overseas conducting research, including in China, Japan, and Russia, and is proficient in Chinese, Japanese, Russian, Spanish, and French. Antony? <laughs> Her most recent book, Wars for Asia, 1911 to 1949, won the Richard W. Leopold Prize, which is awarded every two years by the Organization of American Historians. Her other works include a book on China from 1644 to the present day, as well as five books on naval strategy and history. Anthony Best, professor of East Asian history at the London School of Economics, reviewed Dr. Payne's work 
and complimented her ability to, I quote, recalibrate our historical telescope. In highlighting and contesting some longstanding myths, Dr. Payne's work places the major Pacific Wars of the first half of the 20th century into a cohesive context. Her writings cite the interconnections between China's instability, prospects for Soviet aggression in the region, Japanese ambitions and concerns about communist expansion, and Western ambitions and preoccupation with Europe and the Great Depression. Through Dr. Payne's perspectives, we hope to gain some new and rare perspectives. And if we listen closely, we just may discern the makings of those insights that Dr. Kissinger lauds. So help me in joining in uh, welcoming Dr. Payne. honor to be here with you all this morning with such distinguished colleagues, and I regret my teaching schedule is not going to enable me to attend the whole thing. I really wish I could. You have a treat in store. Before I get started, uh, is this my clicker? Yes. Okay. Before I get started, I want to clarify some terminology and how I'm going to use it this morning. Joint operations means coordinated Army-Navy operations. The operational level of war, the way I'm going to use it this morning, means what goes on in the battlefield. The strategic level of war has to do with grand strategy, and this is what I mean by grand strategy. Strategy integrating all the elements of national power, not just the military, but also economic, diplomatic, spying, whatever you got, integrate it. And it's all in pursuit of the policy objective, which is not the battlefield objective. It is the objective for which the war was fought. Okay, Let's see if I can get going here on my slides, if I can make them advance. Ah, bingo. All right, this is how you all know that World War II ends. And how does Japan wind up here? Think about it. Japan is the model developing country of the 19th and early 20th century. How on earth does this come to pass? It seems quite incredible, and I will talk today in these terms. I'm going to talk in terms of framing events. What do I mean by framing events? They're things of such magnitude. Yes, they're the aggregate of human decision making. But when you're framed, your decisions are made within the framework. And I would argue the framing event of the, of the 19th century is the Industrial Revolution. And the framing event of the 20th century is the combined effects of World War I and the Great Depression. So my game plan is to talk about how the Industrial Revolution forced a choice on Japan of modernization or westernization. And this is a choice that is still out there for countries that haven't industrialized. I'm going to argue that Japan fought two breathtakingly successful wars from its point of view, but derived incorrect lessons from them. Then I'll turn to the 20th century, the next set of framing events, and talk about this third war that goes terribly wrong. And Japan fights it in a far more difficult international environment than the previous two. And I'll also talk about it's not only missed lessons, it's not only a, a much more lethal security environment that gets Japan into trouble, it also has to do with incomplete uh, institution building. So back in the day, the world changed in Asia in the mid-19th century, and it had nothing to do with what they were doing. It had to do with exogenous changes taking place on the opposite side of the globe. The Industrial Revolution begins in Great Britain at the very end of the 18th century. After the Napoleonic Wars end, it starts spreading to continental Europe, and it's been making its way around the world ever since. And it hits Asia. The impact of it starts hitting in the mid-19th century. What's it all about? A combination of these technological and institutional changes upends the world as we know it. It produces compounded growth, something that we take for granted. Previously, societies were pretty st static, no longer. And it's going to have an enormous impact on traditional societies. Think of the great civilizations in existence in the 19th century that have security paradigms that have been working for them. Well, compounded growth by those who industrialize versus those who don't, after a generation or two, yields a very different balance of power. The Industrial Revolution brings in a truly global international order, and it is based on trade and geared to that, making money, making wealth. 
and it is a catastrophic event for traditional societies. And you can still see who's rich and who's poor in the world today. It often is, reflects the degree to which they're industrialized. This problem is still out there and with us. So the British uh, introduced this world to China by forcing a treaty port system on them. And the United States does likewise to Japan with good old Commodore Perry, who's uh, buried where I, where I teach in Newport. And he's forcing the Japanese to open their doors to trade. And the United States thinks this is a win-win, right? If we all trade and, and abide by these rules, we're all going to get rich together. Well, other people might have a different view about this, about how win-win it is. Back to the dock in Tokyo at the end of the war, you have General Ishiwara Kanji. He had been one of the masterminds of the invasion of Manchuria in 1931. And here's what he tells his American prosecutors to try to turn the tables on them. He said, look, uh, Tokugawa Japan believed in isolation and had its doors locked tightly. Then along came Perry, your guy. And Japan, for its own defense, took your own country as its teacher and set about learning how to be aggressive. Why don't you subpoena Perry from the other world and try him as a war criminal? Now, there are other ways of looking at these things. Japan looked at what was happening in China back in the mid-19th century and was horrified. China's losing wars. And the Japanese decided they had better go and study the nature of the problem. And the people that they sent, this is just the most famous fact-finding mission, the people they sent concluded that Japan's security problem was not simply military and technological. It was also civilian and institutional. And when they asked themselves the question, can we just get away with simply what, um, modernizing, i.e. getting just a state-of-the-art technology? Or do we have to westernize as well these hated intruders? Do we have to imitate some of their institutions in order to become a producer and a creator of these modern technologies and not a mere importer of them? And the Japanese, at the end of the 19th century, conclude the answer is they have to westernize in order to modernize. And they make a very detailed net assessment of their country, their international environment, what their problems are, strengths and weaknesses, and they come up with a two-part grand strategy. They conclude, as they look in their environment, that they have problems all around them. They have an emerging power vacuum in China. Russia says it's going to build a Trans-Siberian Railway. That means it's going to be able to deploy troops in numbers where others can't. And Japan thinks, ah, this is a bid for empire. This doesn't look good for us. And they look around at the great powers of their time. They think they have to become one to protect their national security. And they note, they're all empires or really big countries. We probably need an empire too. Why would we depart from this model? They also note all of this accelerating Western imperialism. So they have a two-phase grand strategy. First, they're going to fix themselves at home with a whole series of institutional reforms, institution building. And during this period of domestic reform, they're going to avoid foreign wars, the opposite of what China does. China resists the West, loses one at war after another, and has great difficulty reforming as a result. And Japan said that model won't work for us. But as soon as we're done with the institution building, which is impressive, we will then embark on sorting out this empire and get involved with foreign policy. It is amazing what they achieved in one, the Meiji reforms in one generation. They maintain the policy continuity to, to implement this. It's impressive. They're the only country that does it. But within days, after they've done all this, they go back to Britain, which is the superpower of its day, an international precedent center. And they say, we need to re renegotiate our treaties on the basis of juridical equality. And Britain does it, because there is no reason not to. Japan has a full upset of legal institutions. Uh, Japan gets rid of the unequal treaties uh, at the end of the 19th century. China's not going to do it until mid-World War II. It's a big difference. Okay, within days of treaty revision, Japan is off and running on its foreign policy, firing the opening shots of the first Sino-Japanese War, and it fights a second war within the decade. It's going to fight a series of three wars to stake out its empire and to contain Russia, whose imperial ambitions they see as a direct threat to their own. These two wars work out really well from the Japanese point of view. This one, the third Sino-Japanese Wars, brings down the empire. What happened? All right, back to the first of the three. Think about Korea. 
It has been a crisis point in international relations for 125 years. And this is because it sits at a grinding point, the battleground among three very powerful neighbors, China, Japan, and Russia. If you're Korean, it's been a tragic location, the battleground for others. End of the 19th century, Korea suffers from the largest peasant up uprising in its modern history, the Tonghak Rebellion. The Korean government calls in China to help them, China its suzerain, and the Japanese use this as a pretext to declare war and start getting the empire that they want. The first Sino-Japanese war is fought in two sets of key battles, two, pa two pairs of key battles. The first pair occurs in s within a week of each other in September 1894. What happens? The Japanese defeat the Chinese at Pyongyang, and the Chinese flee all the way back to their side of the Yalu. This yields the Japanese their objective in this war, which was Chinese out of Korea. In addition, the, Chi the Japanese defeat the Chinese Navy at the Battle of the Yalu and get command of the sea. Why? Because the Chinese are not interested in fighting any more naval battles with Japanese, and they hightail it to port. Over the winter of 1894, the Japanese then are looking at the future balance of power of Asia, and they want to eliminate China's state-of-the-art fleet. China has no fleet. It cannot project, project its power overseas, right? So they blockade that fleet at Wei Highway, conduct a joint operation where the army gets in behind the harbor and takes the shore guns and sinks the fleet. Note, this eliminates Chinese naval power to, until our own day. It is only in our own day that China has been rebuilding the fleet lost in this war. This war has significant strategic consequences. Think about it. Little Japan compared to China, it defeats the greatest land power in Asia. China has held the balance of power for time immemorial. Not anymore. Notice, it also validates Japan's very controversial Meiji reforms. They had not been popular among Japan's population, but now they see the advantages. And it greatly increases the prestige of the military and particularly the army. And this is going to begin setting a bad trend line. Regionally, Japan replaces China as the dominant power. It is the beginnings of the Japanese empire, right? They got the pescadores in Taiwan. This is the origin of the two-China problem. It begins now. Internationally, Japan becomes a recognized great power. My proof? The Anglo-Japanese Alliance, 1902. Britain has exactly one long-term alliance between the Napoleonic Wars and World War I. This is it. In addition, all of a sudden, the Russians are seeing the Japanese in a very different light as a rising power on their vulnerable Siberian frontier. And this ushers in a Russian-Japanese arms race and an unprecedented redirection of Russian foreign policy away from Europe, where it always had been, to Asia, with all sorts of things uh, for the future. The Russians decide to run the, the uh, Trans-Siberian Railway. You know it runs today. It's on the northern bank of the Amur River. But in this period, that doesn't get built until World War I. In this period, Russia runs it straight through Manchuria. It's going to stake out its claim to empire. And the Japanese do not like this. Meanwhile, the Chinese don't like it either. They're sick of Westerners in their country, and it leads to the Boxer uprising. The Boxers want all Westerners to get out of China, and they want to kill anyone who remains. And as part of their game plan in Manchuria, they are tearing up this, these railway lines laid at such great expense by the Russians. So the Russians deploy over 100,000 troops. It's a lot of people to deploy to take Manchuria. And then they refuse to leave. And this is where problems come. Japan wants to trade Japanese influence over Korea for Russian influence in Manchuria. Russians aren't interested because they're thinking they'd like Korea too. So this is where Japan gets into its second uh, war. And think about it. Look at the asymmetries between Japan and Russia. I mean, Russia is so much larger. Its population is so much larger, a much larger army. If you do the measures of the emerging industrial world, Russia beats Japan on all these statistics. doesn't phase the Japanese. They fire the opening shots of the Russo-Japanese War, and they follow the same uh, path of the first Sino-Japanese War. They send three armies up Korea and then deep into Manchuria. They have to keep one army besieging Port Arthur with their navy there. Why? Because they cannot afford to let Russia's fleet, Far Eastern fleet, out of port because it could 
interfere with Japan's sea lines of communication. If Japan has no sea lines of communication, it can't get anywhere. They're stuck at home. And then the final big battle is at Mukden. When this happens, Japan is out of troops. If there is another battle after Mukden, Japan loses because Russians are constantly sending people in theater. Japan has nobody left. But lucky for Japan, there is a revolution breaking out in European Russia. When the, the Japanese sink or commandeer the Russian Navy almost in toto at the Battle of Tsushima, it goes viral in Russia. So exhaustion of different types are forcing Japan and Russia to the, the bargaining table. Again, there are enormous strategic consequences of this war. Think about it. Japan, resource poor, population constrained Japan, defeats the largest land power of Europe. It was unthinkable before this war. Russia is forced to remove its troops from Manchuria, the original war objective, and Japan gets even more. It gets not only the sphere of influence that it wanted in Korea, but it's again validating the, the westernization program at home. That's very important for government stability. And it gets better. The Japanese get the southern half of Russia's really expensive railway concessions. And they get that big naval base at Port Arthur. So although people say, oh, the Japanese didn't get a monetary indemnity out of this thing. Well, actually, they got a huge indemnity in kind. It's called all those railways, which cost a lot of money to build. Again, Japan is the dominant regional power in Asia. And the Russians are much chastened. And after this, they assign a series of secret agreements with the Japanese, delineating their spheres of influence in Asia so that Russia can get back to business, which would be in Europe, which is spiraling into a world war that is going to take down the Romanov dynasty of Russia. All right. Japanese officers draw some flawed lessons from these wars that are going to have incredibly pernicious effects when they start applying them to the Second Sino-Japanese War. They draw a flawed operational lesson. Their idea is that willpower is the trump card in military operations. Uh, yeah, willpower is important, uh, without a doubt. But the Japanese think that their indomitable will can solve all problems. And when they examine these many siege uh, assaults on Port Arthur, this is during the, uh, the Russo-Japanese War, the lesson the Japanese draw is if you send enough men at the problem with enough willpower, they will overcome all obstacles. I believe the real lesson that eluded all military observers at the time, not just Japanese, but all of them, including all the Western ones, said is if you send a bunch of men up against entrenched positions with barbed wire and oncoming machine gun fire, you're going to lose a lot of people. This would be hearkening of what the new world war to come was going to be like. But no one saw it at the time, least of all the Japanese. And because the Japanese think willpower is going to do it for them, they're overlooking the weapon systems that they cannot possibly afford. They're exaggerating the abilities, the possibilities of using of what their own personnel can achieve. They're minimizing the logistical problems of large theaters, and they're minimizing the abilities of their adversaries. There are also some even more important strategic lessons that the Japanese miss or misalign. The idea, and this is drawn not only by the Japanese military but public alike, is that the army wins war and the diplomats lose the peace. Why? Uh, the idea is that Japan should have gotten more out of these things, that in the first war Japan should have gotten uh, the concessionaries on the Liaodong Peninsula, and in the second war they should have gotten a monetary indemnity. What they didn't get is what a high-risk strategy taking on China and Russia was. And they also missed what had gone into translating operational success, success on the battlefield, into strategic success, that long list of achievements that Japan got in both wars. They missed the skillful diplomacy that went into making these wars work. The alliances that they needed to have it all happen, getting people to help mediate the end of one of those wars. Also, all the war loans they need, needed, public affairs campaigns, intelligence campaigns, and also the adherence to international law to avoid third party uh, intervention. They missed all of that. In addition, they missed another big strategic lesson. They looked at these wars and they said, we want them. 
No, actually, your enemies lost them. It wasn't what Japan had done so right, and Japan had done so many things right, but rather, there's another way of looking at it, is what have your adversaries done wrong? Qing China and Romanov Russia were actually cooperative adversaries in the following sense. Neither of them leveraged their great strengths, nor did they target Japan's pretty obvious weaknesses, like those sea lines of communication. If Japan can't cross the sea, it does not get to theater. So if you target those sea lines, it would be a good way of halting the Japanese. It, they also didn't target Japan's manpower shortage. How do you maximize numbers of Japanese troops killed? In fact, the Russians and the Chinese fail to contest river crossings and also mountain passes. If you really want to take out your enemy, if you prepare in those locations, and geography indicates where armies have to go. There are, there are not infinite choices in how you get to these theaters. Uh, the Russians and the Chinese could have exacted far more losses than the Japanese. And also, neither country, as a matter of strategy, tried to draw the Japanese inland to fight on extended lines. So, uh, but for incompetent military strategy, both the Chinese and the Russians should have won these wars, and they didn't, and the Japanese missed that whole thing. And then there's another absolutely fatal error of misassessment of oneself about whether Japan was a maritime or a continental power. You have this general, Admiral Yamamoto Gombei, who's looking at Japan's island geography and says, look, the Navy should be the dominant service. Sure, we got an empire, but in more time we can dump the empire. We don't really need it. It's not essential for Japanese security. You can imagine what the army thought about that. And so there's a big army-navy fight. This is actually taking place on the eve of the Russo-Japanese War. And what they decide is they're going to have separate general staffs, and it's going to start a trend line of greater and greater divisions between the army and the navy. This man, Admiral Sato, was one of the most well-known naval experts in Japan because he published his book in 1908, which were his lectures that he gave at the Japanese Naval War College. And here's his take. Among the powers in the world, there are only three countries that can defend themselves primarily with navies. They're the UK, the US, and Japan. And this yields a very different security paradigm, if you follow it. Predictably, uh, Marshall uh, Yamagata disagreed. He is the man who draws up the war plans for the first Sino-Japanese War and the Russo-Japanese War. In fact, he's already coined this phrase that Manchuria is Japan's absolute lifeline. And this man, General Teruchi, who had, uh, at the beginning of World War II, World War One-ish, is uh, running Korea. He's he's got he's the one who comes up with the idea about an Asian Monroe Doctrine, and. Just like the United States with President James Monroe in 1823, when the United States tells the other world, the rest of the world, to stay out of Latin America, Japan is going to tell, try to tell the rest of the world to stay out of Asia. And by 1915, Teruchi is saying eventually all of Asia should be under the control of our empire. And then when you get into the 20s, you have the government pursuing a Japan-first policy and trying to incorporate Manchuria and Mongolia into the Japanese empire, and this is going to guarantee Chinese hostility. And uh, General Tanaka, who's then prime minister, he said Japan should free itself from previous conditions of being an island and develop its national future as a continental power. He misses both Japan's great strength and its great weakness. Its strength is its moat. It is not easy to get to Japan. That means it has sanctuary at home under most conditions. On the other hand, he misses a great vulnerability. Japan depends on imports to survive, can't even feed itself. And trade does well in peacetime, not in war. The, meanwhile, in the 20s, the Navy is initially going along with arms limitation treaties, but gets increasingly upset about this. And the upshot is of a big domestic brouhaha is that the military is going to get the right of supreme command to veto any cabinet decisions that have anything to do with the military. This man, Admiral Kato, who signs the 1922 Naval Arms Limitation Agreement, has a different view. He says, look, national defense is not a monopoly that belongs to military men. 
you can't fight without money. And even if we can match the United States in ter uh, terms of military power, where are you going to get the money to do this? So therefore, it's insane to fight the United States. In the fall of 1941, this man, Admiral Inouye, circulates his national defense plan, and he looks at, it, at the map and he says, look, we can't invade the United States. We can't occupy Washington, D.C. We can't blockade the place. The United States can do all of these things to us. We cannot fight these people. Admirals Kato, Sato, and Inouye are on the losing side of the Army-Navy debate, and they're also on the losing side of the fleet, the debate within the Navy. The fleet faction of the Navy and the Continental Futurists of the Army uh, win the battle by some strategic assassinations. For those prime ministers who messed around with Navy force structures and told people they were supposed to compromise with Chinese, well, the Navy and the Army assassinated accordingly and get rid of prime ministers Hamaguchi, Inukai, and Saito. And the army didn't appreciate being told by foreign ministers that uh, we can't afford this. Great plans, but no budget. And so they assassinate finance ministers in a way in Takahashi. Bad news for Japan. That is about the last time you have any civilians speaking too much truth to power. And here's the problem with misidentifying Japan as a continental power. Continental and maritime powers face radically different security problems. Continental powers, think about them, they tend to have lots of neighbors. Their most lethal threats tend to be one or several of those neighbors. So they must retain large standing armies, and typically they want to have buffer zones so they aren't fighting on home territory, better to fight on someone else's territory. But it means this large standing army tends to have a great deal of influence in the nation's capital. And armies of this sort will probably want government programs that are to fund the army and conduct foreign policy in a way that is good for the army, and this means they often gravitate towards state planning. The maritime world is different. For those countries that can have a maritime security paradigm, they don't have to spend money on all of that big army because it's very difficult to invade them, and this allows them to focus, instead of spending money, on making money through trade, which they do, and the Navy is about protecting those sea lines of communication to get the, th the trade through. And if anyone tries to invade them, that Navy is, is meant to gun them out of the water. But it is all about um, leveraging not only the military, but the economic and diplomatic elements of national power. This world requires lots of allies to make it work. And in fact, there are two different global orders that are at play here. The continental world order is negative sum. Why? The loser in these fights for territory um, loses the territory, but the guy who gains it gains damaged territory. It is lost in the fighting. This world order is, comes from, it's ancient. It comes pre-industrial revolution. When part of the industrial revolution Money and power were a function of land, right? Land produced agricultural commodities to be sold and the peasant conscripts to put in your armies. This is where it originates. But this continental order is all about spheres of influence and these negative sum disputes. And money is destroyed at a really rapid clip. The maritime global order is positive, swamp, positive sum. Why? Because it's about economic growth. Anyone can join in and have economic growth. But it requires freedom of navigation to get the trade truth to get the trade through, free trade, and a whole bunch of international institutions and laws that govern how we interact with each other. The maritime global order has lots of allies in it. Continental one doesn't have too many in it at all. And if you want to see the continental thing in action, think Aleppo, right? That devastated city. That's how it works. All right. So the Japanese wind up defining their country as a continental power, and it leads to all sorts of problems. Getting down to a no more grand strategy, but you're going to get down to a single instrument of strategy, which will be the military, and this false belief that operational and strategic success are the same things. All right. The next framing events are the Great Depression and uh, World War I and the Great Depression. But let me get, tell you a little bit what's going on in China. Remember, the Qing Dynasty falls in 1911. 
and it is followed by a succession of three nationwide revolutions. And then the, nor the warlords of North China eviscerate themselves in a succession of wars. And the way these wars are fought look a lot like World War I. This is not trivial warfare that's going on. It just hasn't been studied very much. And then this allows Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists to reunify the country coming from the south. But Chiang Kai-shek's uh, reunification is not complete or firm. There are a lot of defect, attempts to defect from him in the Nationalist Coalition, a lot of coup attempts, and even wars. In addition, Chiang Kai-shek is trying to eliminate the communists and fights a series of five encirclement campaigns. The last one's the one you know about. It leads to the Long March up to desolate Yan'an. So China is churning. And the environment becomes treacherous for Japan in other ways. Um, Japan's Great Depression starts immediately after World War I, and it's because it loses all those markets in Europe. No one's buying ammunition from the Japanese anymore, and the Europeans reclaim their markets in China, and it is a mess early, and the Tokyo earthquake does nothing to help things. And there's also a collapsing or a collapsed regional order in Europe. Think about World War I. It eliminates entire empires, Imperial Germany, Tsarist Russia, Austria-Hungary, gone. France gravely weakened. Britain weakened and overextended. Russia goes communist. Total mess. And for Japan, Russia going communism introduces an ideological problem to the traditional spheres of influence problem with Russia. Because communism, guess what? It has a market in China, as in Japan. Japanese intellectuals and, and laborers are interested in communism bad news. And the Russians are quite busy um, setting up communist parties all over the place. They fund them everywhere, including all along Russia's borders, but also in Japan. Note also, the Russians are, are funding not just the communists in this big Chinese civil war, but lots of parties to keep the place churning. In the continental world, what you want to do is keep your neighbors churning. You don't want a great power on your borders, and then you want to bite off territory as you can get it. And Japan looks at this and goes, how can we prosper if China looks like this, let alone if China goes communist? So from Japan's point of view, the world's truly gone lethal. Think about it. It's two most immediate neighbors. Are nationalism is becoming a real force in Korea and China, and this is viscerally anti-Japanese nationalism. And communism in Russia is also anti-Japanese. And where are most of Japanese investments, overseas investments? In the two most hostile places, Korea and Manchuria. And meanwhile, the West, which had traditionally been a friend of Japan, responds to the Great Depression by going protectionist without thinking, oh, if we raise our tariffs to historic highs, do you suppose others will respond in kind? No kidding, they will respond in kind. It tanks trade globally. And the Japanese depend on trade. What are they going to do? And this is when empire looks really good and self-sufficiency. So it's a mess from their point of view. And this is when it's no, it's no coincidence that the Manchurian incident, when Japan's going to invade China uh, big time, uh, occurs uh, I mean, within a year of the Holly Smoot tariff. And the Japanese try to pin this. I mean, you look at it, it's not much of an explosion, whatever it was. They try to pin it on the Chinese, but it turns out the Japanese did it themselves in order to give them a pretext to take off and invade all of Manchuria, which they do within four and a half months. Manchuria exceeds the size of Germany and France. It is not a, little, a small rental property. And the Chinese respond. They can't respond conventionally. They know they'll lose. So they have a mixed strategy. Chinese citizens across the country boycott Japanese products. The market's gone. Not good for Japan. In addition to doing that, those in occupied areas wage an insurgency. So it's not easy for Japan to maintain order. And the Japanese continue their military operations southward. They never quit. And Chiang Kai-shek goes to the League of Nations and launches a diplomatic campaign and says, get them out of here. And the League tells Japan to leave, and the Jap Japanese leave the League instead, and the global order that goes with it. Now, 
Japan's investment scheme in Manchuria, which they form a puppet state of Manchukuo, seems to be going swimmingly. They transform Manchuria into the most industrialized part of Asia outside of the home islands. And the army thinks, uh, great, we've done it, because they're looking at their invasions and thinking that's what, what uh, solves Japan's problems. Actually, no, it's this guy who does it. Uh, this man, Foreign Minister Takahashi, implements a bunch of expansionist uh, fiscal policies, monetary policies, and he restores Japan to full employment in 1935, well ahead of the West. Uh, and he offer, offers a lot of advice, which the military doesn't want to hear. Uh, he says, look, the army doesn't stop at planning to send troops ahead abroad for military reasons, but interferes in diplomatic and economic decision-making as well, so our country doesn't have a unified pro policy. We need to get rid of their general staffs. So we can imagine how well that one went over. <laughs> And he also pointed out the dangers of self-sufficiency and autarky. He said, look, our country's poor in natural resources, and I doubt that we can compete in an autarkic environment. Uh, if we focus only on defense, we're going to cause inflation, and trust with our allies um, is going to collapse. We're going to have problems with our allies if we do this. Uh, thus, national f defense is not going to be secure. No kidding, he got that one. And commenting on, commenting on the Italian invasion of, of Ethiopia, he says, look, if a country increases its empire and puts money into it, it costs a lot of money to invade somebody else, how big a profit are you going to have? Until the profits come in, the, the home country has to carry this thing. This is a problem. Japan had trouble realizing any profits from all of its invasions. Now, Takahashi tried to limit the military budget. He did keep it at a fixed percentage of GNP. But notice the government budget, the military budget, just skyrockets, and he's unable to get the military to back down. And they get sick of him, and he is um, assassinated by the army. They come into his bedroom, and here's an 80-year-old man. They come into his bedroom at night, and they start samurai sorting him and shooting him. And they get rid of a bunch of other key players, and no one's speaking truth to power anymore, and the army is and Navy are truly in control at this point. Now, there are consequences to all of this. Uh, is armies in control, and we're going to start thinking in terms of very operational world. And this is when Japan changes from the limited objective in China, which was just uh, for Chiang Kai-shek to recognize Manchukuo independence, to the unlimited objective of regime change for the nationalists as well. At this moment, Stalin is looking around at the world and thinking, it looks bad for me, because I have uh, the Japanese on one front who can't stand communists, and Hitler comes to power in 1933, and Stalin thinks that there may be a two-front war in store for him. And this item, the Anti-Tank Comintern Pact of November 1936, really gets his attention. Why? The Comintern is the Communist International. It's the Soviet outreach program to fund communist parties worldwide. This looks like he's got fascists coming after him. And the nationalists in China and the communists have been asking Russia for conventional aid to fight the Japanese for several years. Stalin hadn't been interested until this thing causes an instant change of mind. And so he provides that conventional aid. And so the next time there is a dust-up, instead of backing down, the nationalists escalate. And then the Japanese are apoplectic. And this is when you have this major escalation in 1937 of Japanese pouring down the Chinese coastline and up the Yangtze River. And the, the nationalists and the communists of China think that, that in addition to this conventional aid, the Russians are going to send troops as well. They don't get it. Once they're in, Russia's out. Russia's not going to be fighting a two-front war. China is going to deal so that Russia doesn't have to. Lots of Chinese die. Okay. So if we look at the world from Japan's point of view, it's a much more lethal international security environment now than when it fought its two successful wars. The adversaries are no longer cooperative. The neighbors are angry. The allies are preoccupied elsewhere. Uh, the economy is a mess, and the genius generation is dead. And the genius generation uh, had, had trouble agreeing with each other. They had had very vigorous disputes, but they couldn't agree on how to institutionalize their status, so they didn't. The Constitution doesn't mention the Genro, the 
founding fathers of Japan. It says nothing really about the cabinet or the prime minister, what are the sources of their power, the limitations. And this gave the general maximum policy flexibility while they lived, but they could not bequeath their status to others. And it's going to be a problem to try to duplicate what they had been had doing without their prestige. Instead, they leave the world with a figurehead emperor. The emperor is the legitimator in chief in Japan. He legitimates decisions made by others. The problem is, who are those others who are going to be making the decisions? Now, here are the preeminent civil leader and military leader of Meiji Japan, Ito. Prince Ito is, uh, is the author of the Meiji Constitution, and here's what he favored, civilian control over the military, party government, foreign policy and cooperation with the United States and Britain, constitutional monarchy, and running the show through the House of Representatives. Well, that is not at all what Yamagata wants. He is uh, all about ruling through the emperor, non-party cabinets, have the war ministry sort things out national uh, mobilization, and his successors are going to want to cooperate with the, uh, with the Axis. And here's the hitch. Yamamoto, uh, Yamagata uh, survives Ito by 14 years, and he is going to use these 14 years to infiltrate his supporters throughout the bureaucracy. And there's a problem with the next generation of officers. The Meiji generation had broad experience. Civil military leaders knew each other personally. They were the ones who had created the Meiji Restoration in the first place. But as the next generation professionalizes, has very separate career paths, they have no idea what the other is doing and don't appreciate the contributions of people with different career paths. This incomplete uh, complete institution building is going to leave uh, the army thinking that if they just win on the battlefield, that is somehow going to deliver Japan as a great power, capable of protecting its national security. And it's uh, the institutional problems, the, there aren't mechanisms that force Japan to integrate all the elements of national power anymore. The cabinet's been neutralized. Think about Military operations have an incredible impact on finance, economics, diplomacy, etc. If you do not consider those other elements of power, you are in deep, dark trouble. In addition to those missing mechanisms, there are no institutional mechanisms that are going to force the Army and Navy to ta start talking seriously to each other. Again, the Meiji generation, they all knew each other. Personally, the original naval officers, many of them had started out in the Army because the Navy is, is created second. And you're going to have the Army and the Navy going off in different directions. And even in the 20s, when Japan's going through a depression, they become enemies because Japan simply doesn't have enough money to fund it all. So the most stovepiped career, it could be argued, is that of Army officer. At least the, some of the civilians were left were diet members and other things. But the Army is just incredible in Japan this period. And you can see... Uh, General Tojo, Prime Minister Tojo's, look at how many cabinet posts he operates. I mean, it's like, he is the cabinet. Uh, this is a problem for executing strategy. You may think it's great because no one argues with me, but you don't hear the counter-argument. You can get yourself into deep, dark trouble. And this is the consequences of all of this, right? These are statistics on how many Chinese become refugees as a result of all of this. 95 million people? It's incredible. Millions die. Millions more starve across Asia. And Japan's neighbors have neither forgotten nor forgiven all of this. Think about the strategic effects of military operations. Japan's neighbors still haven't gotten uh, over it. Are we down to great-grandchildren now? It's incredible. All right, so that is my explanation of why two wars go well and why a third doesn't go so well and the importance of thinking about strategic effects of military operations. And so thank you for your attention. I've got to pick one thing up. Especially about my seat, right? Would you rather just stay here? Back to my seat, right? Sure. Um, so uh, now we'll turn for some questions, either from our panel or from the audience. 
Uh, but the first question I think I have to award to my colleague who has a key to my office. So, <laughs> Arthur, you're first. I know all your secrets. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, thank you very much. That was very, very, really covered a lot of ground and really sort of helped provide a kind of deep background for many things that we'll be talking about here for the rest of the for the rest of the conference. Um, one quick observation and then a question. The quick observation, you mentioned the fact that the Western observers of the Russo-Japanese War missed a lot of the key lessons to be learned from that, really the first sort of modern, you could even say mechanized, land warfare. I would note, that, and I'm sure you're right, I would note that one of those observers was Douglas MacArthur's father, Arthur MacArthur. And one of the things that he focused on, he, he arrived at the Battle of Mukden right after the battle had been fought. And one of the things that he became focused on and almost obsessed with was the, the enormous uh, firepower could be generated from the machine gun. And in fact, he, he writes a highly technical manual on the use of machine guns. And I often wonder if Arthur MacArthur had not retired and died in 1912, but it had been in a position when U.S. was getting prepared for World War I, if he would have thought about some of those lessons differently. Interesting, interesting what if. Now my question. As you know, many historians point to, you know, where did Japan go wrong in, in what, what, was the, what was the road that was, that was taken uh, and where was the fork? Many of them point to the suspension of the Anglo-Japanese alliance in 1922 as an important watershed moment. Um, what's your evaluation? That's certainly an issue, and the United States also failed to. Um, yeah, what do I need to do? That's what I was wondering. Yeah, um, the United the the. Um, that's definitely an issue, but the United States also failed to build up its navy. You know, navies are about negative objectives. They're preventing other people from doing things. When you're successful in a negative objective, nobody notices, right? The bad thing doesn't happen. So it's hard to prove that you do anything. We did not build up our Navy, and that may be an element of it. But I think the really big issue is, I mean, my lesson is, don't let the global economy tank, the Great Depression. If you do, those countries that are truly desperate, the United States is a really wealthy country. We seem to muddle through one way or another. But we're not the only person on this planet, only country, and others get desperate. And if they go to war, it may affect us in a really big way. And as expensive as it is preventing wars and having the institutional structures that do that for us, wars themselves are far more expensive. So, and uh, apropos uh, Douglas MacArthur and his dad, a colleague, Nick Murray, has written all about um, going after uh, entrenched positions. It was known that it was costly, but everyone thought that you could always get away with it. They never anticipated you get stalemated doing it. Uh, that's what they thought, except Britain did. Yeah. Sir, and would you wait for the microphone and state your identity? I'm Michael Yehuda, uh, former professor at LSE in London and now uh, at George Washington. Um, given, if we look at it from contemporary eyes, um, one of the issues that seems to strike me a lot is the issue of race. Um, the Chinese always talked about the Japanese as kind of dwarfs, and they still do. Yes. The Europeans tended to look down on them as well. And uh, how far was that a big factor in terms of readiness to learn lessons or not? You know, I've never studied that explicitly, and I would imagine that would be very difficult to document. We all have prejudices, right? And let's take all my bad assumptions. If I knew they were bad, I would change them, but I don't. So I'm going to go forward. And since I don't even know that they're bad assumptions, et cetera, I mean, we call people racist, and, and but they don't think they're racist. They think whatever they think is the way the world is. So I don't know the answer. I think it's very difficult to document. But certainly racism in combination with nationalism is a really heady cocktail. Gets people to do all sorts of things. But I can't document that. Question at the back, please. 
Robert Bible. Uh, comment on, uh, please, on the uh, uh, influence of Theodore Roosevelt's pushing himself into the Russo-Japanese War and the influence that had on the Japanese for the next 30 or 40 years. Ah, sir, he did not push himself in. The Japanese pushed him in before they even started the thing. This would be the American view, that surely we made all the relevant decisions. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> Ito Hirabumi, he got his son-in-law, who was a graduate of Cambridge, to start working on people in Britain if it went that way. And then he went for Harvard graduates, there weren't too many of them in Japan, to have them available in Washington to telephone uh, Roosevelt when the time came. And like many Americans, I'm sure Roosevelt wanted to be important. And he gets a Nobel Prize out of it, so it couldn't have been a bad deal. And so the Japanese have him set up. Roosevelt doesn't know he's set up, but they have him in mind that when things get bad, they're going to have him be the look like the honest broker to back out of this situation. Sir. Uh, thank you, Dave Rubinwitz. Uh, uh, based on your very clear explanation of the lessons that should have been learned <clears throat> from the Japanese exports, I was wondering what would be your elevator talk advice to the next administration? Uh, I work for the Navy, and um, you noticed on my first slide it said all my opinions are my opinions, right? It's up there, right? What I say has nothing to do with anyone but right here. Okay, so now we've established that. <laughs> Clear? Um, the West, the the global order, all these institutions, the UN, the World Trade Organization, there are so many of them. They are what the the spider's web of institutions that hold the peace and force us to talk to each other instead of killing each other and getting rid of those institutions. You, you look at something like NATO and go, ah, it's expensive. Well, if it's preventing a general war, it's actually cheap. And I think that my generation has forgotten what we're preventing and the costs of what we're preventing. And we all think, oh, no one will ever toss a nuke. Uh, the world will change the day someone tosses one of those things. Anyway. Sir. Uh, Professor Payne, uh, it's rather interesting that historians tend to analyze causes of war and all that on very objective facts. And we all can have various opinions, but we are not entitled to hold on to our own facts. It has to be objective. But what I, what I have uh, found that, that is unusual is that there is such a thing as the people's history. Uh, in, 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 in Chairman Mao's uh, phraseology, uh, the Japanese uh, have always been regarded as the Nihon Jin. That means they are the second Han. They are not the first Han Jin, which is the Chinese. The Chinese is first Han. And the Japanese are always the Nihon. And I wonder, Professor, whether in your historical research have the Japanese uh, founded the war against the Chinese based on the fact that they have always been regarded as inferior. They are the second Han. They are not the first Han. I think that people the world over have treated other people as inferiors. I don't think that's a characteristic of any one particular country. I think it's a characteristic of the human condition where we denigrate each other. Uh, I think the Chinese, when they are being bitter about what happened to Japan, and there's much from, to them from Japan, and there's much to be bitter about, ought to consider their own minority peoples who have an equally bitter tale. Talk to a Tibetan or a Muslim, or even a Manchu, about what has happened to them. And I think what it will do is put us on a much more equal plane instead of saying, ah, I come from such and such a country. I occupy the moral high ground to understand that uh, we can share the low ground together. I, I was wondering whether the Japanese, in their history, have developed the idea that because they I can't, I, I, I can't answer that. I'm no expert who can talk about the Japanese and their history. <laughs> it's beyond my expertise. Just like in Rome, 
slavery with your own race in Rome until, until the Anglo-American period when slavery was between the whites and the, and the Africans. So I was thinking that perhaps... There's still Japan, slavery in the world. Perhaps in Japan, the Japanese developed this war against the Chinese uh, motivated by the animus that they are the second heart, they are not the first. <laughs> uh, so we may be running a little bit towards the next presentation. We take one more question, if we could. John Carlin, I've always thought it's a failure of strategic thinking that we can't find a way to theoretically, as well as actually, combine the notion of a maritime and a continental strategy. Uh, certainly, in a way, we did this in the Cold War. Your page, positive some, negative some, suggests that they are in opposition. Not necessarily. I, Maybe. There was so much to talk about, and I just packed a lot of things in. Um, but when I look at what I think is fundamentally a maritime order, the only reason I even think this way is because just by sheer chance I wound up working at the Naval War College where these problems are studied. My background is in two great continental empires, Russia and China. So it forced me to think in other ways. What I think is you got the British Empire, and what they do is they train barristers all around the world. And that means you got lawyers who are actually equipped all over the world to understand how international institutions might function. So what starts out as a British foreign policy paradigm, you can expand it to a whole bunch of countries which you would think would have a continental security situation. So that, take a look at the United States. How many allies do we have? Or are you going to call them coalition partners? And I'm not going to slice and dice that one. But it's 100 plus. So that, if you think about what the rogue states are now, they'd be Russia, Iran, North Korea, whatever you think. There are not that many of them. And when they do something naughty, the posse comes after them, right? If, and you don't actually have to have a military solution to it all. It's simply sanctions, right? Sanctions are about negative objectives. How much growth can I shave off from you? And if I keep my growth going, in 20 years, how do we look? That's what works in the Cold War, right? Russia was in, into uh, its suicidal own economic policies, but then when you cordon them off, it has a multiplier effect. So when I look at this maritime order, I'm convinced, this is just me and I could be dead wrong, is that our global order has a maritime origin. It is now expanded to many formerly people in continental positions, and that if you play by these rules, your country can grow. And P.S., if you're a small country in this system, others, just because you're Holland doesn't mean someone can go beat you up. It, it's, um, you get frozen out of the system. But anyway, that's my take on what makes sense to me. But who knows? Many thanks to our first speaker for a wonderful presentation. Thank you again.